Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is vocalist Darlene Koldenhoven. But I don't know if you've heard, but Universal Music may have a new owner. Vivendi, the French company that owns UMG, is looking to sell as much as 50%. Now, Vivendi is interesting because it's a water company. That's where most of its money came from, and yet it winds up as an owner of Universal Music. And Universal Music is now the number one record label, the largest record label in terms of market share. And because the music business is going back up, now is a prime time to sell. What's interesting here is that one buyer already announces intentions. That's Liberty Media, who say they're interested. They already own Pandora and Sirius XM, 34% of Live Nation, Formula One Racing, Atlanta Braves, the Discovery Channel, QVC, and much more. So this is a big conglomerate that's looking to buy as much as 50% of Universal Music. Like I said, Vivendi is selling UMG pretty much at the top of the market, although the whole thing probably won't consummate for 18 months. And there may be another buyer other than Liberty Media. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a Universal artist, you may have another corporate boss in a very short period of time. So keep looking out for that because that has major ramifications on the music business on how UMG, Universal Music, is going to be operating in the future. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, Get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about mastering because there are so many musicians and artists that have kind of the wrong idea of what mastering their songs really means. It's not a plug-in. It's not just something that you can throw on the mix bus and all of a sudden your song is mastered. It's not, in fact, just adding EQ and making things hotter. There's a lot more that goes into it. The classical definition is mastering is a process of fine-tuning the level, frequency balance, and metadata of a track in preparation for distribution. In fact, what mastering really is, though, is trying to take a group of songs and make them all sound as if they were recorded together and they belong together. So, as you may well know, when you mix an album, when you mix 10 songs, they're all going to sound a little bit different. And what mastering does is it tries to make them sound more the same, both in level and just in overall frequency balance. And this is really difficult. It's not something that a plug-in or an online process can give you. It takes a real ear to be able to do this. So that's why we go to a mastering engineer. A mastering engineer can make a big, big difference in everything. But you might say, okay, if I have these great mastering tools, what does a mastering engineer really bring to the table? Well, first of all, the room, the playback system, the playback area of a mastering engineer is super precise. Mastering engineers will have spent hours and hours and days 
just fine-tuning everything that goes into the playback system. And that includes the room, and certainly it includes the speakers. Many times you'll have speakers that cost about the same as a house in some cases. That enables a mastering engineer to really hear inside a track and be able to pull out things that you probably can't on your normal monitors that you mix on. It's really difficult, especially to master on the same monitors, because usually what you're doing is you're compounding any problems that you have. So in other words, if you have a dip at 80 cycles in your room when you're mixing, you're still going to have that same dip at 80 cycles when you're mastering, and there's no way that you're going to know. On the other hand, a mastering engineer will spot that in a second, and will either tell you, you know what, you should go back and try to rectify this, or let me see what I can do. The second thing is the gear is usually so much better. And I'm not talking about the software, although in many cases the plugins can be very expensive, where in fact we're used to two, three, four, five hundred dollar plugins and plug-in suites. A mastering engineer may be paying three times as much just for one plugin. Again, it's for the precision. There's also the whole playback system, the speakers, the amplifiers, the room, any outboard gear that's being used in many cases. There's a lot of analog gear that's being used to make everything sound better. And then finally, and maybe the biggest thing, is the ears of the mastering engineer. And that's something that you can't replicate by a plug-in or a processor. The ears are basically the experience of the mastering engineer in different genres of music, not only listening to great mixes, but also listening to really bad ones as well. And after you listen to enough of each, you begin to determine what really sounds good and why. So that's why a real live mastering engineer can help you a lot better than an online process or some sort of a plug-in. Now, we all don't have budgets for mastering engineers. I realize that. And that's where the online processes or any of those mastering plugins come in handy. And yeah, they can certainly get you in the ballpark, but many are so powerful that you have to be very careful that you don't make things worse instead of better. And that's the biggest problem with those. So don't underestimate what a mastering engineer can bring to your project because chances are it's a lot more than you think. My guest today is Grammy-winning vocalist Darlene Koldenhoven, who has appeared before a staggering 1.5 billion worldwide viewing audience on PBS as the memorable soloist in Yanni, Live at the Acropolis. She's also coached musicians and singers in the war-torn jungles of Sierra Leone and sang on hundreds of recordings for films and major recording artists. Darlene is classically trained with a master's in voice from Chicago Conservatory College, certified in audio psychophonology from Integrated Listening Systems, as well as an internationally renowned, credentialed sonic therapist and lecturer. She's also created a music education program titled Tune Your Voice, Singing and Your Mind's Musical Ear that has been endorsed by faculty and students from Juilliard School of Music to NYU to American Idol. In the interview, we talked about how dressing for the situation nabbed her apart in a hit motion picture, a unique Ray Charles session, teaching tone-deaf people to sing, and much more. Darlene and I spoke via phone from her home in Los Angeles. Let's start by talking about you growing up in Chicago. And the reason why I want to go there is because... A lot of times people start in a situation that maybe isn't conducive for the music business, but the story of how they get out and into the music business is usually pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, that was quite a turning point, yeah. 
uh, I grew up on the far south side of Chicago, and um, I went to a private Dutch Christian Reformed elementary school and high school, and then I went to Chicago Conservatory College for my bachelor's in music education and my master's degree in voice. And then I taught school in the sh- music in the schools in the Chicago suburban su- school system. But all the while, I always wanted to, you know, be the artist, you know, and go to California and, and seek my career, you know. But other things happened, and so I ended up teaching school for like six years in the suburban system. And it was a wonderful teaching situation. I had uh, Orff, Carl Orff instruments and, you know, Amazing stuff. It was really lovely. But I wanted to come out to uh, to California. And and so through a series of, of events, um, one of the interesting things that happened was I was supposed to move out with a girlfriend of the guitar player in the band that my piano player boyfriend at the time was in. <laughs> and... <laughs> She kind of forgot to tell me that um, she didn't pay her rent for a few months because the landlord messed them up on the heat in the apartment. But I had put all my belongings in her apartment, everything I owned. I I won a synthesizer in a contest, a little ARP synthesizer, my master's diplomas, you know, uh, everything, everything I was at her place. So she didn't tell me this, but we were going to leave for California, so I was going to come out first and find an apartment. So when the movers came, she'd go later, and then, you know, the movers would have a place to bring the furniture and bring all our stuff. But she didn't tell me she didn't pay the landlord, and so the landlord evicted her on the 1st of February because the movers couldn't get in on January 31st because there was a blizzard in all the streets in Chicago. (laughs) No one could go anywhere. So bad timing of a blizzard. Landlord evicted her, and of course all my stuff out. So I basically (laughs) came to California with no connections. $400 to my name. I had a little brown Celica at the time. Uh, I had two weeks' worth of wool turtleneck sweaters and pants and my turntable, you know, my stereo, and a few of my select albums. And that was it. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's how I got started, with no, practically nothing. So there you go. That's the basic story. I empathize with you because I did the same thing. I came out to California and I didn't know anybody, and I had a little bit more. I had $600 in my pocket. but it was the same thing not knowing anybody and and then trying to make your way from there so what was the story from there so you get out here and and then how did you get into uh the studios yeah i got out here and um i put up little cards in the grocery stores you know piano teacher because i was already an accomplished pianist and vocalist and i could read music really well and so forth so when i got out here um my mom said, well, there's good. She called. I called when I got out here because I drove myself. And I said, Mom, I'm here. Everything's okay. She goes, well, there's good news and bad news. Um, the bad news is, you know, you lost all your belongings, right? Mm. The good news is one of your high school classmates is out there doing music, and here's his phone number. 
because this, my high school was organizing a 10-year reunion, and so my mother made this connection for me. So I called him up, and sure enough, he was doing some arranging for some local producers, and, and so I got started uh, singing in the studios, you know, doing backup work. My first uh, ever solo and backup job was for um, doing a Fleetwood Mac sound-alike for the Pickwick label. That were these were out knockoff albums, you yeah. know, that were sold like in Kmart, Kmart's and stuff, right? Yeah. But yeah, that, so that was my first, you know, session. And as you know, it's a very social industry. So you know, you do good on one, and somebody recommends you for another and another, and that's and that's kind of what what you know how it came together. And uh, my first, so that was the summer of '79 when I first came out. And my first Grammy nomination happened, I think, 1981, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, that happened fast. What was it? It was for um, singing lead soprano with Claire Fisher and his his group, um, 2 Plus 2. And it was in Best Jazz Vocal Performance by Duo or Group. And that particular year we won, that was the first nomination. The second was in 92, and the third was in... I'm sorry, 82, and then the third was in 86. And we won the year of 86, presented with the award in 87. And Manhattan Transfer did not put an album out that year. So backstage, you know, when you go win the Grammy and then they take you to the press room and all that kind of stuff, you know, I thanked Manhattan Transfer for not putting an album out (laughs) that year, (laughs) which gave uh, other people a chance, you know, it's one of those kind of things. Yeah, it happened there. It's funny because I used to do a lot of producing with blues artists, and inevitably I'd have a, a great album that we'd do, but Eric Clapton would put an album out, you know, or B.B. Or King or somebody, yeah. and, you know, of, yep. of course, then they'd win by name recognition, and obviously it was good work too, but <laughs> you, know, you, you have to be kind of lucky with those too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately when you get out here, you started to work. And I could see why, because if you have the goods, people hear about it and they hear about you fast. And you obviously were schooled, which a lot of singers aren't. And I think that probably meant uh, a lot. Yeah, it it did. Especially uh, the things that I got into singing, I was, because in college I was doing things like singing operas and singing atonal music. Wow. Um, you know, Luciano Berrio and different things like that with orchestras and stuff. Now, I don't have perfect pitch, but if you've ever, anybody listening knows what kind of <laughs> music that is, it's very, you know, there's no diatonic center and you and it's a lot easier to sing that stuff if you have perfect pitch. But if not, you have to have really good relative pitch. So that paid off because one of the first... Um, movie dates I ever got called to sing on was Poltergeist with Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. And that was the most amazing score I've ever seen in my life. You know, they called me at six o'clock in the morning and said, one of our sopranos couldn't make it. Uh, can you please come down here right away? So I jumped in the car and drove from Van Nuys to Culver City and Sony lot, you know, <laughs> was MGM at the time. And and uh, sang on this thing, and I walked in, it was a 100-piece orchestra, huge, you know, 40-piece choir, we're all standing on risers all day long, you know. Uh, And the music was really 
difficult because every measure had a different time signature. Wow. And, it, and it was, you know, it's not so bad if it's the top number that changes and the bottom number stays the same. But when the top and bottom number change, so you go for like 3, 8, to 7, 16, to 4, 4 for a bar, and then maybe, you know, 3, 4, and then maybe, you know, who knows? I mean, it was just insane. And it was like that all day long. And then you'd be counting measures. You know, you'd count like 32 measures of all this crazy counting and then all of a sudden you'd have to come in and sing one note. You'd have to sing like a B or something. You'd just all of a sudden one eighth note. And that was it. Then you'd have to count another, you know, 100 bars or something. I mean, it was insane. But um, I was up for the task. You know, I did it. And um, I was stood next to the, the contractor, and she could see that I had done it. And so that kind of cl- clinched that deal, too. So, yeah. So it was. That's how I got started, just because I came prepared with skills. Now, as good as I could read music when I graduated from college, and I could also read uh, piano music as well, open orchestral score and all that kind of stuff, um, I still didn't feel I could sight sing to the top of my game yet. And so I put in a lot of extra hours, even for the first like six months when I got here, to really you know, polish that craft. I mean, if you ever read, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, you know, they talk about 10,000 hours of mastery. And that's about right. When I came out here, I had 10,000 hours. I figured it out when I read the book. I had 10,000 hours on piano, 13,000 hours on voice before Mm. I even landed here. And I think that makes a big difference, you know, one would hope. But but again, the interesting thing about a lot of that is um, I was classically trained. I was raised in an environment where I could only sing religious or classical music. I was not allowed to improvise. I got beaten severely unconscious if I improvised uh, or was creative in any way. Wow. That was considered a sin. And so I really, you know, I had to overcome a lot, <laughs> you know, come from behind, so to speak. And and get it together. So, uh, so I worked very hard. You know, I was very motivated, self-motivated, and worked very hard. My father had died when I was fourteen, and my sister was five. So, at an early age, I learned how to become responsible and be disciplined about my time, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that all, as as rough as it was to grow up in that environment, it kind of paid off in terms of when I was finally here and doing what I wanted to do and, and so forth. Yeah, well, that can go one of two ways where it could either beat you down or you can beat it and be better for it. Yeah. The story of how that happened is similar to what I've heard before, but it's always unique and yours is especially unique because of, of your training, I think. Most people that I talk to don't have that amount of training before they get here. Right. Now, I had to learn, though. <laughs> Check this out. Remember, it was only religious or classical music. So I had to learn jazz, piano and voice, rock, all that kind of stuff. So I devoured it like crazy, like for about a year or two before I came here. So I was out of the house, but I was teaching school, right, in the Chicago suburbs. 
I really wanted to get into jazz. So I devoured every jazz history book that was available, you know, Leonard Feather's book and, you know, a few others. And back then there weren't as many as there are now. Plus I just, you know, in the book, they would list who all the players and singers were. Well, I'd go out and, uh, you know, buy albums or rent albums at the library or whatever to study. So, you know, I had the mind, the curiosity for learning and the mind for study and the discipline for study. So I wasn't proficient at it because I had to go from a classical training, which is like a formal training, which is basically see this note, press this key. That's a memorization process. So I had all of that. Now I had to open the ear and learn chords and chord changes, you know, and improvising and all that stuff, and you know, and not be afraid to do all of that stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a lot that I had to learn and, and go through, make that transition. But it was, you know, I was really blessed when I got out here in terms of hooking up, you know, with the right people, um, getting into doing the studio work, good sessions right away, working with Claire Fisher in the beginning, you know, and performing live and, you know, and just all the great projects and stuff that I was able to work on, you know, building one from the next and the next and the next, so. And and we're still, the train's still moving, so hey, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, obviously, there, there's lots of different types of sessions, and a jingle session is different from uh, a film session, which is different from singing on a, a music album. What would be the most fun for you? <laughs> well, the most fun would, would be when I had like all three or, three or four on one day, and if it was arranged where the classical one was first in the morning and then the jazz one in the afternoon and then, you know, go in the studio at night, you know, and sing on rock project, you know, mm-hmm. all night, you know, and then you'd get out, you know, and the sun would be peeking through the doors after you've been in there working all night and then the whole thing would start over again, you know, <laughs> hopefully in that order, yeah. you know. But they were all favorites of mine, you know. I love, I loved... The live singing we used to do with the orchestras on the film dates. Now it's not so much anymore. They record the orchestra and then they bring in the singers after. But back in the day, it was everything was done live and it, and it was just phenomenal. So I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I love singing on all the rock albums. I mean, heck, Pink Floyd, <laughs> mm. Rod Stewart, you know, Yanni Live at the Acropolis. I mean all these different things that I've been able to do. Um, Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Will I Am. I mean, it just goes on. Um, and to be able to contribute, because a lot of times on albums, you're called in as a singer and they go, they play the tune down and they go, okay, what do you hear? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so what do you hear? And, and <laughs> so now, well, I'm hearing this and that becomes the vocal arrangement for the thing. Although, Many times you're not credited as such for vocal arranging, but, you know, you are credited for singing, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. And for me, it was fun to see if they spelled my name right or not. You know, on, on the Pink Floyd Momentary Lapse of Reason album, they're off by one letter, but you, you get the gist of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the same problem. Oh, I yeah, you can yeah. relate, yeah. Yeah, right. You told me an interesting story about Ray Charles, doing a session with Ray Charles. Oh, yeah. Can you recount yeah. that? Yeah, that was amazing. Um, I got a call like in the afternoon 
uh, Ray Charles is doing an album. Can you get down to such and such stu- his studio um, right away? And he's already fired two or three other vocal groups before this one. There will be 12 singers. Oh, oh, geez, okay. Okay, so we get down there. And it was very, very unusual. Um, fortunately, the contra- I was not the contractor on this gig, but the woman who was the contractor had enough sense of hiring enough people. We all knew each other re- very well, and we all had sung with each other on various things over the years. So we kind of all knew how what each other sounded like and how we worked together. Because he had each of us, all 12 singers, in line, straight across his room, um, each one of us on a separate microphone, completely closed up in, in baffles, hmm. you know, side to side and forward, not even back. You know, back was open, you'd walk in, and everybody had like a little voting booth, it seemed like, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's the way we were standing in there singing, you know. And that's the way he's expecting us to blend, uh, without even hearing each other really in the headphones. But the thing that astonished me most of all was that he was in the he was in the recording booth by himself, running engineering and running the whole session by himself. Wow! All of those knobs <laughs> and all those buttons to turn, you know. But he would have each one of us had to sing. Uh, separately, and then of course, then he would have the ability of you know putting each mic up and down and mixing louds and softs and all that kind of stuff with him being in control of it, you know. Yeah, wow. But it, it was a, it was very interesting. But our version is the version that ended up on the album. So don't ask me what album it is. I, I can't remember now. I've sung on hundreds of albums. So I can't I can't remember which one exactly. Yeah, was. yeah. Let's talk for a second about tune your voice. Which, which I found really intriguing, and especially after talking to you, the fact that you can teach somebody that's tone deaf how not to be tone deaf. Yeah. Yes, I have my ways. I have my <laughs> ways. <laughs> um, well, I had a lot of experience in, uh, I started teaching school officially as a professional getting paid at in the Chicago Suburban School System when I was 20 years old. So for six years, I had a lot of experience working with little kids who couldn't match pitch at all, kids who were could match pitch, but they're learning how to sing, and kids who were a little better. So I had all, everybody came twice a week for 20 minutes. Everybody in the whole school was mandatory in the state of Illinois. And then also um, I taught gifted kids and special ed kids. So I had the gamut, and that's where I really got a sense of human nature, the human sense of singing, how we grow up with it, depending upon what the teacher or parent or friends or neighbors might say about us to our voices, you know, about our voices. And so with all that teaching experience in mind, plus singing on over a thousand recordings and movies and records and commercials and in live and all that kind of thing, I got a real sense of a lot of information I wanted to share with people, but that the bottom line for the whole thing is that the training of the ear is often neglected, and that's where singing begins in mind's musical ear in the in the brain in the ear in the brain and so um you know i I have a lot of different you know masters in voice and all that stuff. I also am a practitioner in neuro linguistic programming. 
and in audio psychophonology. And so with all of this information, I, I set out to write Tune Your Voice. So uh, it's a book with seven CDs. It's only forty nine ninety five, a great price for all that information, uh, written by, you know, me, who, and I do all the narration and stuff, so it's a lot of fun, and it keeps your spirits up as you go through things, and I give you tips along the way, as, you know, we did this in the studio with that, or, you know, try this with that, or whatever, you know. So it's complete ear training, uh, so one develops a very, very keen sense of relative pitch, and it's voice lessons, and you sing your way through basic music theory, the stuff every singer, you know, needs to know. And so... No matter what level, you know, it makes the music education complete so you don't have, like, Swiss cheese for an education, you know, mm-hmm. where you learn a little here and a little there. This puts it all in one concise thing. You're creating new neural pathways in the brain, and you're creating what I like to say is a musical grid in the brain. So you're really acquiring a huge vocabulary of music that you begin to draw from. So it's a great way to people go, I don't know what I thought, find your own voice. It's a great way to find your voice because you're singing all the intervals on different vowels on all 12 tones of the scale and you learn what that means. Um, You're singing all the chords, you're, you're beating in rhythms, um, there's even bits about form, all kind, everything you need to know is in there. And so it comes in high for women and children and low for men and uh, guys whose voices have changed, you know, have lowered. Mm-hmm. So um, that a guy and a guy sings the examples. So men are not confused. What octave do I sing in? Yeah, you know, yeah. when, a, when a woman gives the example. And it's real super organized um, there's even a listening CD, so you sing through the five teaching CDs, there's the vocalizing CD, and then there's this really cool listening CD, because we learn consciously and subconsciously when we learn music. Subconsciously, we call a culturalization, meaning what, what you're hearing in your environment. So basically, I created a, a CD that's just a listening CD that's meant to be put on very, very quietly and run, looped, and just run a long time in the background, and you don't pay attention to it. It's just there doing its thing subconsciously for you. So that really expedites when you go through and sing through the other stuff. It really expedites the learning and makes it really fast. So for the students, my voice students, you know, that have gone through this, and, and now I've sold, you know, a few thousand copies, and colleges are recommending it, and high schools are using it as their music textbook, um, even for instrumentalists, I, I've been getting such great feedback and in my own studio just hearing people, you know, and it's first of all, it makes it very easy to communicate with each other because we're all speaking the language of music. Mm-hmm. You know, like say, mm-hmm. take it an octave higher or, you know, no, this is up a third. You know, what does that mean? Well, now you know what it means. This is how we all talk, you know. Yeah. And uh, so there's even that aspect of it that makes it great is that you learn the language of music. And then you become also, because, you know, I've sung with a lot of different composers and stuff. And not all of them will have notes. You have to do it by rote, by ear. And they'll sing you a melody, but their singing is not that great. And the writing is tremendous, but the singing is not that great, probably because they never spent a lot of time listening to themselves sing, making the ear and the voice have a connection, because they're 
connected by a lot of nerves and muscles and all this stuff. So we, I was constantly asking, is it this note or is it this note? What note is it? You know, is it? <laughs> and well, it's this note. Yeah, and then I sing the note and they go, no, that's not the right note. I go, yeah, but that's the one you sang. So, <laughs> so now let's go try again, you know. So it just made it real easier for everybody who used it. It made the communication and the business of working on music together effortless. You know what I'm saying? Because everybody's on the same page. Now, one of the things we talked about previously was the fact that one of the most difficult things for many people who can sing very well by themselves is hearing harmonies. Right. That's a whole other learned experience. Right, right. But I've looked up and down for a way to do this, and I've thought about it, because I can hear harmonies very easily and I always could, and it confuses me when other people can't. <laughs> you know, it's hard to relate to, especially really good singers. <laughs> yeah. But you said that this course will actually teach you how to do that as well. Yes, it does. It teaches you because um, you're singing through all the different chords and their inversions, and you begin to have this musical vocabulary in your ear of hearing all the other parts plus your own part. So there's that in there. And then the listening eye technique movement that I created, this is the, that'll also help that um, by focusing your listening. And this technique just works really brilliantly and, and quite quickly with people who have a difficult time matching pitch. And so it's an eye movement technique that I developed uh, that's in the Tune Your Voice book that's really quite f- profound in terms of quickly opening up the ear. And even people who are soloists only, if they're not used to singing harmony, again, you have to draw their attention to, well, what is harmony? What does it mean? Here is, here's how it works. Here's your place in the harmony. So there's a lot of musical games and so forth in the book where you're guessing, you know, how many notes I'm playing. So you have to listen for how many notes, you know, and it really helps distinguish your hearing and refine and fine tune your listening skills which then translates to the voice. So, sure, yeah. yeah. Tell me about Color Me Home. Oh, Color Me Home. This is my ninth album, and Chromatones, which is the instrumental version, I took out all the vocals and replaced it with instruments. And that's my tenth album, so I have ten albums on my own label. Uh, Color Me Home, I'm so proud of. It won 20 awards and 35 nominations. And the reason why I'm extra proud is because it's the first album where all the music is written words, uh, music, the arrangements, all the piano playing and programming, all the vocals, all I did myself. And then I hired uh, 17 guest musicians to do some solo work on it, you know, like Tom Scott on clarinet, Ricky Kesha on keyboards, and David Arkenstone on guitar, and, you know, all kinds of great people. So yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> but the coloring book that comes with it. Yeah, it comes with a coloring book. And I chose, like, I went through 3,000 different images and chose it to three images per song. And then I put those three images up and I played the song, played the track, you know, the mix track. And and it was interesting because some of the pictures, you go, oh, God, that's a great picture for the song Color Me Home. And then you'd look at it with the music and you go, oh, no, that one fits with the music better. So I, you know, as, as a sonic therapist, I also, we also incorporate um, coloring and art in with some of the sonic therapy that we do. So I thought this would be a good way to 
bring that over into you know the new age mainstream in terms of coloring while you're listening because it deepens the listening experience and each image matches the pictures and even at some concerts that I've done um, the audience gets colored pencils and they can sit there and color in the program because it has a lot of the images you know from the book and people color while at the concerts too so (laughs) it's kind of fun well you just mentioned something sonic therapy so tell me about that because what I find interesting is you're classically trained and you're, you're very trained in your instruments and you didn't just stop there you went beyond that I find that what you're doing with therapy to be an interesting extension of what you're doing yeah um, and it's, it's, it has an interesting foundation with me. Um, so I don't do music therapy that's traditionally taught in college and so forth. I do something more called sonic therapy, and there's a couple different aspects of that. Um, the one that I do is developed by a Dr. Tomatis and in Paris, France, and it's called audio psychophonology, ear, brain, voice. And... Um, that involves listening to very acoustically processed, especially processed music, mostly Mozart, um, and it uh, exercises the eardrum and the muscles of the middle ear, which then stimulates and, and can regulate the timing and the processing of how the ear and the brain is, is processing all that information. So... When that all gets tuned up, so to speak, um, one can eliminate uh, things like dyslexia, ADD, ADHD, um, autism, um, insomnia, PTSD. Uh, I mean, it just you know it goes on and on and on because the the brain also has a the person has a psychological aspect to listening, which is a choice. Hearing, we have no choice over. That happens automatically starts when you're a a four-and-a-half-month-old fetus in the womb, and you begin to hear the voice of the mother, where Dr. Tomatis used to say that to him that was the beginning of consciousness. It's also the last sense to go when you die. But listening has a conscious choice. And depending upon what you're listening to can determine the sound of your voice, because he also proved the voice can only do what the ear can hear. So depending upon what the ear is listening to and the frequencies that are coming in, that's going to determine the sound of your voice. So I use all of that with my voice students as well and my gifted people because it really, well, if you want to ever get motivated and perk up your creativity, this is another way to do it with this program because it's really quite phenomenal. But how I got started with all this, if I may, was um, I have one sibling, a sister, who's nine years younger than me. And she was born uh, deaf with no ears. She has bilateral oral atresia. And so when she was six months old, she was one of the first to have what they call bone conduction hearing aids. Now, in 1954, Dr. Tomatis, interestingly enough, was the doctor who told the medical community, we also hear by bone conduction in (coughs) in addition to air conduction. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, I didn't know Tomatis' name back then, and I I didn't get to find out till Tomatis until you know maybe ten years ago. Um, but thank God for Tomatis because my sister had bone conduction hearing aids when she was six months old. So it was my job. My mother and I went to Elam Christian School for the Handicapped to learn how to teach deaf children 
to speak and sing. And so it was my job to put the headphones on my sister when she was a baby in the crib, you know, and her eyes would light up, you know, because she could hear then, you know. And and then when she was four, she had experimental surgery where uh, the doctor drilled into into her head behind one of the ear, ears folded over behind one of her nubbins and made a canal, an eardrum, the three little bones and the two little muscles and connected them to the inner ear that she did have on the one side. And so that was a miracle surgery because the first person died, second one became an imbecile, my sister was the third one. Wow. So hers wow. is very successful. So uh, were you to meet her, you would have no idea that she um, had a hearing deficit like that. Wow. So I got into healing with vibration, you know, because that's how you teach deaf people how to speak. They have to feel it with the vibration, you know. So I got into what this thing was, bone conduction, vibration, all of that stuff, at nine years old. And so I kind of just grew up with that, so to speak. So that's always been kind of part of me. But, you know, it wasn't until recently, you know, like I said, 10 years ago, that I really started develop getting into deeply, um, you know, and becoming a practitioner and so forth. Went back to school and studied, got credentials and everything. And it's just, and it's such a joy. I just love, I get fulfilled from helping other people. I just love to hear uh, a student's voice improve and change, you know, or, or play piano and get better. And I, and I just, you know, to give somebody the ability to match pitch and see their joy on their face and the change that happens, that just does my heart so much good, you know. And so whenever I, that's just kind of like my, my center in my life is, you know, I want to help people become the best that they can be, you know. And my mother always said I would make a good teacher and, and maybe she was right as much as I balked. I wanted to be a star, you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I think I did okay, you know. I think I did okay and I'm continuing to, to do more too. So <laughs> Fascinating. We can go on and on, but I don't want to keep you, Darlene. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Uh, well, It's interesting. It was a bit of tough love, and it was about, you know, um, finding your way yourself because you have to really know who you are as a person inside to be able to be freely creative, to be able to stand your ground when you're dealing and talking and negotiating in business. and to to be able to, once you know yourself really well and your condition really well, um, then you're able to say this is my bottom line. Like for example, in negotiations, here's where I walk. You know, yeah. and I have no regrets. You know, you have to have that line drawn in your own sand, so to speak, about this is as far as I go. And if I have to say no, then there's no regrets. So saying yes to as much as you can, honestly. Learning how to say no politely and, you know, and within yourself have the reason why, which you don't have to explain to the other person. But most, <clears throat> most of all, just to be really prepared. A lot of people don't realize uh, how prepared they have to be and how, here's the big word, persistent they have to be. Mm. Most people give up too soon. 
you know. Um, that's one of my concerns with uh, younger generations who, oh, they might try, you know, to get them to try something for the first time is difficult, but even once you, if, once they, if they don't master it the first time they try it, then they say, no, I can't do it. That's tough because that's not how life goes, and that's not how people learn. That's not actually how the brain works, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess don't cut off your nose despite your face, I guess, or something like that, you know. And then for fun, because I do a lot of sewing and sew my own clothes, it's like always dress for the occasion. Um, that helped me get land the Sister Act movies, actually, so <laughs> getting a role in those. So, How so? You know, that kind of comes in. Well, um, the, you know, I had already done the recordings, right? And uh, then they called one day and they said... Uh, the director, you know, we'd like to see you. They're thinking about mixing in one or two real singers mixed in with all the actress nuns. Okay, fine. So can you come down and bring your resume and picture and come down? I said, fine. Now, I had an opera, uh, nun's habit I had from an opera I was in back in college, right? So I just put the headpiece on, and I went down to the casting office with a black dress with the nun's headpiece on. Yeah. And walked in like that, and they were they were like, "Wow, cool, okay, fine." So it was like I was in there for like literally two minutes, dropped everything off, and left. But a couple of weeks later, they call me and they go, "The director would like to see you." And by the way, can you dress the same way? <laughs> okay, so this time I put the whole nun's habit on, <laughs> the whole thing from top to bottom, and I went in there, and uh, you know, did. Did the audition with her, talked to him, and got the part, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I kept, until the contracts were signed, until the ink was dry on the contracts, I kept showing up at rehearsals looking like a nun. No makeup, hair pulled back, plain black dress, gold cross on the front, black shoes, black stockings. I really downplayed myself as much as possible. Okay. Yeah. The day the ink was signed, I went to the Sister Act rehearsal fully dolled up. Now, you know, back in 1990-91, you know, you're, you're pretty dolled up back then. The, the hair is big, you know, there's, yeah. there's yeah, a lot right. of makeup, bright clothes, padded shoulders, all that kind of stuff. You know, so I show up in this bright lemon dress, lemon yellow dress with black tights and, you know, makeup and hair and... He walks over to me, and he said, the director walks over to me, and he goes, hello, you're, you're new to us today, aren't you? What is your name? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Emil, it's Darlene. Darlene Koldenhoven. And he looked at me, and he looked again, and he slowly stepped backwards like he was walking away from the beast or something. <laughs> I mean, it was... Completely, completely threw him off, you know. But I was wise to do that. And he came over to me later, and he says, "It's a good thing you waited for the ink to dry in those contracts." He says, "Because had I seen you like this before, I never would have hired you." So dress for the occasion. <laughs> you can find out more about Darlene at darlenecoldenhoven.com. That's Darlene Coldenhoven, K-O-L-G-E-N-H-O-V-E-N, all one word. DarleneColdenhoven.com. You can also find out about our fantastic Tune Your Voice book at TuneYourVoice.net. Tune Your Voice, all one word, dot net. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>